Welcome to Conversations About Aging, a Catching Health podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, and I'm traveling around the state of Maine interviewing people 60 and older about their perspectives on aging. A few months ago, I got a call from Patty Eager. Her dad, who's 91, had heard about my podcast and was interested in being interviewed. Not long after, we sat together in his living room at his home in Richmond. Here and there were packing boxes, some of them filled with paintings he'd done, many of them of lighthouses, a hobby he had picked up in his 80s. He was going to be moving into a senior community in Brunswick in the next few weeks. Just another adventure, he told me. He's had quite a few, including being a lighthouse keeper. He and his late wife, Pauline, co-authored a book about their experiences. His half of the book was Lighthouse Keeping, and hers was Light Housekeeping. That's just one of the interesting things we talked about in this episode of Conversations About Aging. My guest's name is Ernie. I'll let him make a more formal introduction. Well, my name is Ernest Gregory Deraps. Gregory for the old bishop uh, many years ago, and Pope, I mean, Pope Gregory. And I'm the youngest and last of 14 children. And my mother was born in Beauceville, Quebec, Canada, and my father in the Magdalene Islands out in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Uh, I lived on a little farm when I was a youngster, and the two older siblings, one was four years and one was six years older than I, so I became almost an only child because my two older, two next older siblings were girls and during the depression years, they went to work while they were just youngsters. And so that left me alone with my mother and father on a little farm, two acres, and uh, we lived in a four room house. Can you imagine an upstairs bedroom with a window, but no glass. It was covered with an old uh, thing from a grain bag. And the front room was where my mother and I, sl- mother and father slept, and where I slept until I was about 10 in a crib because the other beds in the other room were taken up by the other siblings. So even though it was like you were raised as an only child, they came home to sleep at night. <laughs> Yeah. It must have been like a dormitory? Not really. It was just uh, two rooms upstairs. It was a four-room house, all told. But uh, there were two beds in there, and that's boys in one room and the girls in another. I mean, in the beds. But uh, I had a good life. I can't complain. So. And you're still having a good life? Well, I'm only 91 and a half, but... Uh, the good Lord doesn't want me yet. I keep telling him I'm ready, but he's not. That's interesting because I talked to a lady uh, recently, and she's 95. Yep. She had inoperable lung cancer when she was 60. Wow. She was given three months to live, and she's 95. Yeah. <laughs> so she said it a little slightly different. She said, somebody somewhere wants me to stay. But she also said maybe it was her who kept her around because there were still things she wanted to do and things she wanted to see. Well, as you can see, uh, when I turned 80, I started painting, I've always drawn, but by doing paintings, it keeps me occupied. And uh, I visit 
places occasionally. There's a place in town known as the Golden Oldies, and they have cribbage every Monday, and I try to get to that. And uh, I stay active. I go out on the street out here with my orange jacket so people won't run over me, but I, I walk about every day, try to get in close to a mile. So. And you're going to be moving soon to a totally different location. Well, it's going to be much different because I'll be amongst other seniors and uh, the rooms will be open and if they want stuff, I'm bringing my art stuff with me, I can do some art for them. So. Or you might start up like a portrait studio or something and have yeah. them lined up to have their portraits done. Anything but portraits. Okay. <laughs> you can't please people. <laughs> <laughs> they might not like what it is that you saw in them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, let's go back to your childhood. So you've explained to me where you grew up. Yep. When did you leave home and where did you go? Uh, on my 18th birthday, my father signed the paper and I went into the Navy. While I was in high school as a junior, I was fortunate enough to get my flying license. So that allowed me to get into the Navy Air Branch. And I joined the Navy Air, and they sent me to photography school. I was nine months in Pensacola, Florida, learning photography, and I became an aerial photographer. So when I finally finished the school, they put me out on the West Coast, and I was flying in big aircraft with, with cameras, flying up and down the coast looking for Japanese submarines and balloons, anything the Japanese tried to throw into the country. So uh, I did that for a while, but uh, I eventually came back to Maine, and my wife, I got married, a uh, young lady that uh, I had met through her uncle, and we were married, and uh, she says, you know, Ernest, if you stay in the Navy, they're going to put you on an island or on some big ship because you got to fly, because you're an aerial photographer. So I said, well, what should we do? She says, I suggest you join the Coast Guard. I said, well, what's the Coast Guard? I hadn't really heard much about it and I was stationed down in Rockland at the time. And uh, so I joined the Coast Guard and we became lighthouse keepers after a short while. So that's a, another whole story. Well, I'm gonna get to that. I want to fill in some gaps here. Tell me your birth date. I was born January 22nd, 1928 in, in Palmyra, Maine. So I was going to ask you about the Maine connection. When did your family move into Maine? Well, my mother was born in Quebec while her parents were visiting their parents in Quebec. And as soon as the storm let up, they came back to Maine. And my mother grew up right in Fairfield, Maine. But when she went to get her Social Security, she had to become a citizen because she was born out of the country. So even though she was born to Maine citizens, she still had to go through that? Yes, she had to become a Maine citizen. And uh, I lost her when I was only 17, because mm -hmm. I'm the youngest of 14 kids. How old was she? 
Oh, let's see. She was born in 1886 and born, uh, died in 95, uh, 80. It's hard to, I, I honey, to that's okay. I just was wondering if longevity ran in your family. Uh, I'm the youngest of 14. They're all gone. And the oldest one that I recall was my brother Wilfred, who lived to be 96. All the others were gone in their 50s or a couple in the 40s. Well, I lost two brothers during the First World War of influenza. One was five and one was seven. And then later on, just before I was born, one of my sisters passed away. She'd been in the hospital a long time, and I guess now they'd call it cancer. But they let her come home, and she was home only about three weeks, and she passed away. And she was still a child at the time? Well, I think she was 16, okay. 17. You know, I wondered about that, to be the youngest of that many children and kind of like not to be part of the unit. Like some of the kids would have been closer. But still, you've lost all your siblings now. Yeah. What does that feel like? Well, it just makes me feel older, I guess. Mm. But uh, I've had a good life, and uh, I still have my family. And... I'm I'm happy. That's good. I am moving into a senior home, which will be a, a, a new adventure. That is a wonderful way to look at it. Yeah. So when you told me, so you left home at 18, and you went into the Air Force part of the Navy, or whatever yeah. you want to call it. You went into the Navy. Um, when you told me that you got married, a little smile crept up on your face. So I want you to tell me about meeting Pauline. Well... I was working at Dakin Sporting Goods in Bangor, Maine, and I was in the photographic department. I used to go and show films and all of that. And across the hall in another part of the building was the guns and fishing equipment and all that stuff. And there was a gentleman there, and uh, he decided that uh, once my sister left, my sister and I were living together. We had uh, each had a bedroom with kitchen uh, facilities that we could use. But then one day uh, a fellow came and took my sister away. They went off and got married. <laughs> and uh, she had worked for a, a dentist, and it was the dentist's son that came, and they went off and got married. So that left me all alone. And the gentleman, Mr. John Fitzgerald, was in the fishing and gunning department, and he says, I know you're all alone now. Uh, I'd like to have you come out to dinner. Oh, sure, free meal. So I went out, and I was introduced to Pauline Eva Fitzgerald. And I said, huh? And um, I was there. We'd finished dinner, and the phone rang. And Pauline answered the phone, and she turned and looked at me, and she says, I got a, an old friend that would like to come see me. He's in the military, and he's headed away from here. I said, no, nothing to me. I just met you, sure. So about 20 minutes later, in walked a six-foot-six six Marine in full-dress uniform, and I said, wow. So that was your friend, yep. Yeah? So... He took off, and we never heard from him again. Don't know what happened. Never, never heard. 
So anyway, I started dating Pauline. And one night we were sitting in front of the hotel there in Belfast, Maine. And I said, neither one of us were drinkers. And we didn't dance that often. I said, I really don't feel like dancing tonight, do you? She says, no. I said, let's go see a doctor because you had to have a blood test back then. That's pretty romantic, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's romantic. I asked her if she wanted to go have a blood test. She agreed, so we went, and the doctor was closed, so we had to wait and go the next day. But we got our blood test, and within, I think, two weeks, I think we were married. Married at a Catholic church there in Belfast, and uh, I had a whole new life. And it was good? Well, we had 64 years together. Yeah. Uh, many people can say that. But uh, she developed skin cancer, and she was pretty sick for quite some time. And it just so happened my son was visiting and keeping an eye on her when she passed away. I, I wasn't there at the time, probably just as well. But anyway, uh, we had six children, and I think I can almost say seven because we had a little chihuahua puppy, and we happened to pick that dog up on my mother's birthday, who had died many years ago. So we called the dog Mary Little Bit after my mother. And uh, that was our seventh child. <laughs> <laughs> after the others had left the house? <laughs> Pretty much, yes. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's the marriage part of it. And, uh, I still can't get over the fact that instead of saying, Pauline, will you marry me? You said, want to go get a blood test? <laughs> well, she understood what it was all about. So. so you were on the same page? Yeah, we were on the same page. And... It wasn't too long after that we got married, and uh, because I was in the service, she suggested that I get out of the Navy and join the Coast Guard, because then I could be near a home. And uh, the Coast Guard sent me to Rockland, Maine, which is not only 20 miles from Belfast, where we'd been living. And the first part, I was able to get home every other night and every other weekend on leave. And uh, that developed into another thing. A gentleman on one of the men's stags, men-only station in the lighthouse, uh, was having problems with his wife, who was messing around. So I went out and stayed at his lighthouse for two nights so that he could come in and check things out. And evidently, I did a reasonably good job taking care of the lighthouse, although the first night I put the wick up too high trying to get more light out for the mariners, and uh, I went out to check it around 9 o'clock at night, and the thing was just full of soot because I'd put the wick up too high, and I had to clean up a big mess that next day. But anyway, I learned a lesson. Mm -hmm. As a kid, we only had lamps anyway. We lived on a farm, and we had no electricity, no running water, all that So stuff. you were used to lighting the lamp. Oh, yes. So that time that 
When you went in to the Coast Guard, it probably never occurred to you that you would be living on a lighthouse at some point. I didn't even know what a lighthouse was at that time, actually, but uh, didn't take long to learn. And the fellow that I relieved for a couple of nights, I guess I did a fairly good job because next thing I knew, the commanding officer, who was a chief petty officer, said, how would you like to live at a lighthouse? And I says, I don't know, uh, where are you talking about? And he says, well, Monhegan. I said, where in heaven's name is Monhegan Island? Oh, he says, 10 miles off the coast. And he says, I know that your wife has a child and that you're pre she's pregnant with the second one. But uh, I think that uh, the Coast Guard would take care of things if it's needed. So I said, well, I'll have to go check with the missus. So I told her they wanted me to go to a lighthouse, and she asked where, and I told her. She says, 10 miles off the coast. I said, yeah. Well, she says, I guess we could try it. So we went to Monhegan Island, and uh, that was the hardest lighthouse to maintain because it was an oil-fired light, kerosene, and it was known as an incandescent oil vapor light. And there were two tanks on a floor below the lens itself. One was an air pressure tank, and one was an oil tank. You fill the oil tank, and you pump up the pressure in the air pressure tank, and it forced the oil up into the lens up above the next flight up. And uh, I had to use a Bunsen tube to preheat the gas into a tube over a mantle. And once I preheated it, then the gas, not uh, but a vapor gas, would go into an Aladdin mantle similar to an Aladdin lamp. It was a son of a gun sometimes to keep going, but uh, I learned to take care of it. How long were you there? I think if it's in the book that I've published, but uh, I think it was something like seven months that we were there. And I learned to maintain it. and. It had to be on a half hour before sunset and stayed on a half hour after sunrise. Uh, and it was a, a guiding light for all mariners. Are you saying that you had to light it twice a day or it stayed on all that time? Stayed on at night. It stayed on at night. I'd light it at night and it would stay on until morning when I turn it off. But it was oftentimes the very first thing that people coming from Europe could see because they come around the north end of the Atlantic Ocean. And that was one of their guiding posts when they came from England or Ireland or anywhere in Europe. So it was interesting. But uh, after, I think, about seven months, it's in the book that we put together. And by the way, the book is two-sided. My wife's better story and the other side is my side. It's a very clever title for each of them. You are Lighthouse Keeping, yeah. and her story is Light Housekeeping. Yes, and there was a lady who had published several books that I knew that suggested that, yeah. Katie Smith. I have a question about the lighthouse again. So you took care for two nights or two days of a lighthouse in Rockland. Well, no, it was uh, outside of Rockland. It was over towards east of Vinyl Haven, 
I can't. Mark Island was the name of it. Mark Island. So you took care of a lighthouse over on Mark Island to help a fellow out yeah. for two days. Yeah. The Coast Guard saw that you had an aptitude. Yeah. Did you see it? When you were out there taking care of that lighthouse for those two days, was anything stirred I, in you? I knew nothing really about lighthouses at that time. I had seen the one at Rockland entrance to the harbor out on the island, a long walkway on rocks. It Is was it by a, the Samoset? Yeah, from the Samoset, okay. go, went out, went out into the uh, entrance to Rockland Harbor. So I've walked that walk before. Yeah. I think I know where you mean. So you had seen that, but you didn't have any longing to live on a no. lighthouse. No, I had nothing because, well, I was married and uh, we had two. Cho we had one child, and my wife was pregnant with number two, and uh, so I uh, went home and asked her if she'd like to be on a lighthouse, and she says where, and I told her, and she says well. I guess there's no doctors out there except maybe in the summer, summer That's people. Right. So I guess we could do it because the Coast Guard would take care of me. What happened when your second child was born? Did they have to come and cart her away in a boat? Yeah, they came to Monhegan and she went to visit her folks in Belfast. She was there, I believe, only three days and went to the hospital and had a second child right there and in came Belfast. Back came back to the lighthouse. Yep. What did you learn from living on that lighthouse for seven months, besides the fact that it was a heck of a lamp to light? Well, the thing is, uh, mariners need direction back then. Modern technology, you don't even need a lighthouse now. But back then, they could go from one lighthouse to another because there were 65 of them along the main coast, which I have painted everyone. But anyway, uh, back then when they were using lighthouses, the mariners could go from one to another so they'd know exactly where they are because each one had a different significance. One might be uh, blinking every 20 seconds. Another one might be blinking every 10 seconds or it uh, had uh, different characteristics at each lighthouse so that you'd know exactly where you were at if you were on a ship. What made the Monhegan Lighthouse different? It was 10 miles off the coast, and it was one of the first lighthouses that people would see coming from Europe. And uh, I understand that also sometimes in clear weather they could see a highest mountain in Maine, Mount Katahdin. It's on the highest point in Monhegan. And uh, you can get down, well, the last 50 feet of the road coming up is so steep that you have to have four-wheel drive to get up there. So. I wish your wife were still alive so I could ask her some questions too. How do you think she liked living there? She never went downtown, or the town, what little town it was, but uh, we were together, and that's what she wanted, so. And how did you like it? Well, it was a challenge, lighting that light every night and keeping it lit. And uh, there were three phones on the island, one at the lighthouse, one at the general store, and one down at the post office. One night I got a phone call, 
and the post office was closed, and they were trying to reach the store where the other phone was, and something happened. They couldn't reach them, so they asked me to take a message down to the store. So I wrote the message down, and I said, yeah, I'll be happy to take it. I'm uh, working for the military. I'm obliged to do what I can to help all of humanity. So, uh, I wrote the message down, and I decided rather than go down the roadway, I'd take a shortcut down through the cemetery that was just below the lighthouse. Well, that was quite an adventure because I got about halfway through the lighthouse, uh, through the cemetery, and what do you suppose happened? I almost stepped on a partridge, and a partridge flew up between my feet, and I almost went up with it. I said hello to the good Lord that night because I really was jumped out of my <laughs> flesh. <laughs> That's a funny story. Where did you get stationed after Monhegan? Uh, from Monhegan, my wife was very happy because they put us at Fort Point in Stockton Springs, Maine, which is at the mouth of the river and the head of the head of the bay, Penobscot Bay. And it was only about 15 miles from Belfast where we had been living and where my wife's folks lived. So she was very happy there. So you went to Stockton Springs. Yep. And then they sent you someplace else? Yeah, they sent me to what they call a stag station, men only. And it was on a Green Island south of Vinyl Haven out in the middle of Penobscot Bay. It was anyone coming from Europe or whatnot, it was a point that they could see because they had to go around the two islands. Anyway, uh, that took me away from my family, but I was fortunate enough as a, uh, I guess I was only a second class engineman then, I was, had enough money to rent a small place on Vinyl Haven so I could see the family horn in to get mail or whatnot. So were there other men on this island? Well, there was three of us assigned there, and one was usually on leave, and that's when I did a lot of studying because to get a rate in the Coast Guard, you had to t take tests, and I had to study and, and take the tests. Well, so you're on the Stag Island, which you got some studying done, and you got to see your family sometime, but I hope that didn't last very long. I don't remember just how many months. I was there quite some time, a couple of years, I think. Oh my gosh, was that the longest assignment? No. I think the longest assignment was the last place that I was at. Where did they send you after Green Island? From Green Island, they sent me to Brown's Head, which was on Vinyl Haven proper, and it was the entrance to the thoroughfare between North Haven and Vinyl Haven. And I was only there for a short while, I think probably only a couple of months, when we had what they called the annual lighthouse inspection. So people came from Boston headquarters to inspect the lighthouse. And one of the gentlemen, well, three people came. One would talk with me, one would talk with my wife, and the other one would explore the place. And one of the young men got to the foot of the stairs and was going to go upstairs 
And my wife said, I'm sorry, my children are sleeping upstairs. I'd prefer you not to go upstairs. Well, that kind of ticked off the fellow that I was talking with, who was the head of the group, three men. And uh, he says, uh, I understand you've been in the Coast Guard quite some time, and you have never been to sea. I said, that's true. And about that time, he asked my wife to come over and talk with him, and he was sitting at a table writing stuff down. My wife went over and, without looking, sat on his hat. Oh, no. <laughs> so I guess that kind of ticked him off, and the next thing I knew, within a few weeks, I was aboard ship. And I was assigned to a ship which was 311 foot long. And uh, I was had to be on that vessel for 18 months before I could even ask for a transfer. Does that mean you were separated from your family for two years? Not quite. Uh, they sent me to South Portland, where I was on what they call the Main State Pier, and they put me aboard the ship. And we made a few trips out, uh, usually checking for narcotics on vessels that were bringing stuff in and alcohol and so forth. And uh, I was on the vessel for 18 months, and I said, I'm going to ask for a transfer. The one I was on was 311 foot long. I was asked for the transfer, and where did I go? 311 feet up the dock to another vessel. I was on that one for a short while. And again, after 18 months, I asked for a request to transfer, and I got another third ship. In the same location? In the same location, Portland, South Portland. When you were living on those three ships down in the Portland, in the Portland Harbor, was the family in Portland? I found a place, if I recall, uh, in West Buxton, which is about a 20-minute drive away. And you did get to go home? When I was in port. But when we went to sea, we were gone usually for 20, 26, 27 days because we'd go out and stay in a certain area because we were contacts for vessels coming from Europe and so forth. So, And there was, I think, five stations, Alphabet, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, and one other. And those were in different portions of the Atlantic Ocean. The one furthest north was almost at the south end of Iceland. And uh, You never went up there. Oh, yes. Oh, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I remember chipping ice off the vessel when we get into bad weather. You have to go out one hand for yourself and one for the boat. Grab a stick and beat the ice off the vessel. My goodness, you've had some adventures, haven't you? Oh, a few. <laughs> Been here and there. <laughs> Which did you like best, being on the lighthouse or being on the ships, or neither? Well, I like the lighthouses best because sometimes I even had my family with me. It's all in the book that we had published. How old were you when you retired from the Coast Guard? About. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Must have been in my 60s. Okay. So you, you followed your wife's advice and you joined the Coast Guard. You had some adventures. You had six kids, even though you had all those separations. <laughs> When you were all done with the Coast Guard, did you get another job someplace? Uh, 
I worked for the state of Maine for over 20 years. My first job, because coming from the military, I knew about the buoy system, and I put buoys in the large lakes of Maine for five years. And then I passed it on to someone else to do, because they asked me to go to the snowmobile division. And I was in that for five years, and building trails throughout the state, and uh, from October through March, I had to go to each of the four districts in Maine to talk on the latest rules and regulations for light uh, for the uh, snowmobiles. So that was an interesting job. And then where'd you go? I went to the uh, Pesticides Control Board, which was a state and federal job. And my job there was to cover the state and that was during the time of the budworm program when the budworm were killing the trees and they were spaying herbicides on the trees. And my job was to make sure that they didn't spray it in the water because it would have killed the fish. You retired from the state when you were probably about 70, says Patty. Mm -hmm. And then you got another job someplace. Well, I found out about a product they called insulated concrete forms. I found out because I went for a trip to Canada with my brother and his wife and my wife, and I saw this strange structure being built of polyethylene farms, and it was a super insulated house. So I checked with a local uh, builder company up in Belgrade, and they said, oh yeah, we can get those things for you. So I built this house, the first house in Maine, to my knowledge, of insulated concrete forms. Wow. And then when we finished this, my son, the 20-year Marine who lives two miles up the road, we built his, but mine has a full cellar, and his is on a slab, a heated slab. The only heat in this house is in the basement floor, radiant heat. Wow. No heating elements up here on the main floor. Did you end up selling this product too, or did you just use it in your house and your son's house? They, they sold it to me. But did you end up working for the company? No, I worked out being my own boss with my son and Patty's husband, my son-in-law, and we built over 100 structures with this material. So you're still earning an in, in income into your 70s. Yeah. When I turned 80, that's when the missus says, it's time for your fifth retirement. You needed something to do, but it was your wife's idea that you start painting. Is that right? At the age of 80. So that's when she asked me to quit work. She says, you've worked five different jobs. It's time for your retirement. And I said, what am I supposed to do? Honeydews all day? She's the one who says, look, you've got over 3,000 colored slides down in the basement. You've been a photographer ever since you took photography in the Navy, and uh, I think you should start doing some paintings. So that's when it started. So you started painting, and you've painted a lot. Everywhere I look, I see these beautiful paintings that you've done. You're 91, you're still painting. Not so much now. I, I've kind of quieted down, but I'm going to a new home, and I've got all the stuff to go with me so I can do art down there.
Well, that's a nice segue because I do have some questions that I want to ask you about about your life now. Like we're sitting here in your living room of the house that you built, except that by the time I share your interview with the world, you'll be living in the senior facility. Yeah. It'll be a whole new world for you. Yeah. And you're looking forward to it? Yes, I'm looking forward because it's kind of hard living alone all the time. Uh, I get kind of tired of watching TV, which I don't like that much, but I still uh, come up with an idea and do, do a painting. That that takes me a few hours. So I, I just try to stay busy, and I walk a lot. That's what helps keep me young. <laughs> well, you're lucky that you can still walk because some people that I've interviewed in their 90s, that's one of the issues. You're tapping your hip, so it's no. not what it used to be. I've got two falls that help, haven't helped my hips at all, especially this left one. Did they break? No, I never went to the doctor. I don't know if they broke or not, but I fell on the steps, the concrete steps out here. You know, that's one of the things that I guess that as I get older, I think about. I already noticed that I'm more cautious when I walk because you can fall when you're 50 even and it, you can bounce right back up, but when you get to be 70 or 80, it's different. I got a cane that goes, goes with me wherever I go, pretty much now. Do you wear hearing aids? I don't see any. They're on my dresser. <laughs> I you, don't you care for them. You seem to be hearing me okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, just this one here, is, the left one is the worst, but uh, it's a nuisance keeping them on and all that. I, I'm here alone. I don't talk with anybody half the time except my daughter here who tries to keep me out of trouble. <laughs> I hope not too much. She's got a little twinkle in her eye, just like you do. <laughs> well, I try to go to the Golden Oldies every Monday and play cribbage, and uh, I get around quite a bit. You talk about being alone. Is that the same as feeling lonely? Is that what you feel? Not really. Uh, Naturally, I miss my wife. She passed away five, six years ago. And uh, I have my children nearby, my 20-year Marines two miles up the road. Patty here is six miles down the road. I got a daughter in uh, Augusta, my youngest. My youngest son is now living up in Rome, and he works for uh, the lumber company up in Belgrade. And my oldest son put himself through five years of college. He's a Baptist minister. You know, it's interesting. The reason I wanted to start this whole project is because I went to a conference in which they talked about loneliness and how it's the chronic health condition of our century. But I have to tell you that most of the people I've interviewed, even the people I expected, you've got to be lonely, will say, no, not really. I wish my kids would visit more often, but I've got this to do and that to do. I just wonder if you think there's some, not necessarily a secret, but how do you, as you get older and you're spending more time alone, keep from being lonely? What is there a secret? I think if there is a secret, it's the fact that you live life as a an individual, but you always have friends. And if they don't come that often, even though I no longer drive, my daughter takes me here and there. My son takes me here and there. 
and uh, I keep busy. Life is what you make it. That's always been my saying. And I've been fortunate enough to keep active. That's part of the thing, keeping active. Did people ever talk to you like you're a child or talk in a different way to you or get a little bit of, um, what's the word, patronizing sometimes? Make assumptions about what you can and can't do? Yes, sometimes they do, but I just overlook it. I'm me. <laughs> How would you like to be treated? As a person. Uh, I'm still capable. My memory isn't what it used to be, but I've got kids that can help me with some things that I need to know. And I'm going to a home shortly, so that'll be a big help. I'll be with other seniors. Yeah. I hope that they can keep up with you. <laughs> <laughs> what makes it a good day for you? I have this question I love to ask people that. What makes it a good day for you? Get my feet on the floor and get moving. That's part of it. And then uh, I have a habit. I have cream of wheat almost every morning. And all I do is turn on the hot water heater and have my breakfast and then do what has to be done, if anything. And I keep an eye on the birds and I feed the birds. I keep an eye on the animals around. Uh, I live life. Do you think you're going to miss your home when you move to the new senior facility? Yes, because I know every inch of it. I built it. and. Uh, at the foot of my bed, about 10 steps. When I get out of the bed, there's a bathroom, and there's a laundry room here. I've got the whole basement. That's where I do my artwork. And uh, I'll miss it, naturally, because my wife and I lived here for quite a few years before she passed away. You wear a beautiful crucifix around your neck. Yeah. What does it mean to you? Well, I'm Catholic, and I carry my wife's ring as a reminder. But uh, I don't drive anymore. I'm fortunate that I have a couple that live way over in Dresden that come pick me up Sunday mornings, take me to church, and brings me home. And uh, I just feel that I'm going to keep living life as long as he'll let me. When you go to bed at night? I say my prayers. I always say prayers before bed. That was. When I was a youngster, I had to kneel by my mother and say prayers every night before I went to bed. And it's a habit. I am going to ask you this one last question. Do you have any advice you'd like to pass on? Live life, stay happy, love each other. Regardless of who they are, love them. been listening to Conversations About Aging, a Catching Health special series. I'm Diane Atwood, and I've been talking with Ernie DeRapps, who's 91 years old. Since we had our conversation, Ernie's had a change of heart. He decided he didn't want to move into that senior community in Brunswick after all. He wants to stay put in his own home for the time being. If you have anything to say about our conversation or any of my other conversations about aging, please let me know something resonated with you, constructive criticism, you want to recommend someone to be interviewed, including yourself, or you'd like to be a podcast sponsor, whatever. 
I want this podcast to make a difference in people's lives. If you're listening on a podcast app, write a review. If you're on the Catching Health blog, write a comment or send me an email, diane at dianeatwood.com. You'll find pictures of Ernie, a written transcript of our interview, pictures of some of his paintings, and other conversations about aging at catchinghealth.com. This podcast was made possible by Avita of Stroudwater, a memory care facility, and Stroudwater Lodge, an assisted living community, both in Westbrook, Maine. You'll find out more about them at northbridgecos.com. Many thanks to Smith Atwood Video Services for editing the podcast. See what else they have to offer at smithatwood.com. And a thank you to Tom Muser for his support. He's director of the Center for Excellence in Aging and Health at the University of New England.